Good morning. Is anybody cold? Nobody's cold? Okay, good. Yesterday, Kurt installed uh, this fancy little um, new thermostat. He comes over to the, to the parsonage and says, hey, uh, just in case you're wondering when you go over there, I've changed the thermostat, which I didn't even realize you could do. I'm, I'm so technically illiterate. I mean, I, I, just, I don't get this kind of stuff at all. But, uh, yeah, if, if anybody gets cold, uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've seen people putting their jackets on and, and things like that. Uh, I, I'm willing to sweat. Uh, if to, to make you guys more comfortable. <laughs> so if, if you guys do get cold, or if you are cold, uh, let somebody know. We'll, we'll turn the thermostat up a little bit. Actually, it's lower than normal. It's at 71 right now. Normally, it's at 73 uh, when I come up here. Uh, maybe it just measures the, the temperature a little bit differently. I don't know. But uh, if you get cold, don't hesitate to ask for a little bit of heat. Um, and thank you, Kurt, for installing uh, the new thermostat. Kurt is kind of like... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, somebody at my level looks at him and they're like, wow, that's like Einstein stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the daily devotions I do is called On This Day by Robert Morgan. And what it is, is it, it, uh, it has every day, it has a key moment in the, the history of the church uh, that fell on that particular day. And today I was reading, speaking of, of Einstein, um, Today I was reading about uh, Charles Spurgeon. If you guys don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he is perhaps the greatest preacher of all time. And uh, the the, uh, title for this devotion is No Small Churches. And it talks about how Spurgeon used to preach to a minimum of 6,000 people at a time. Uh, That was before they had microphones. I had no idea how they they did that or anything. But anyway, on this day uh, in 1850... Uh, there was a terrible blizzard in England, which is where uh, Charles Spurgeon was from. And as a result, people couldn't really get to church. Some people could, some people couldn't, depending on how far away they lived. They had to walk or ride a, you know, ride a buggy or you know, something like that. And uh, so Charles Spurgeon uh, was headed someplace else, but the, the, clear, the, the closest shelter was a church. So he goes in, and uh, the pastor hadn't made it either. The pastor wasn't able to make it that day, and so they kind of sat there awkwardly for a little while. And finally, somebody goes up uh, to, uh, to the pulpit and reads from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And the guy didn't know how to preach. And so he just repeated it. All the ends of the earth, look to me and be saved. And he finally looks to Charles Spurgeon, who didn't know Jesus at this point, and he says it to him, and Charles Spurgeon does it. There are like 10 people there, 10 people there. And that's the atmosphere. On this day, on January 6th, 1850, that was when uh, Charles Spurgeon came to Christ. And Charles Spurgeon is kind of like the Einstein of, of preachers, uh, if, if you will. Um, and the reason I'm talking about Einstein and all that is because our, our sermon today is going to start with a story about Einstein, who was on his way uh, to, uh, to a train. He was going to a train one day, and he was getting ready to board when he realized that he wasn't exactly sure where he had left his ticket. And so he checks his pockets. Uh, he opens up his coat and starts checking his pockets there. He, he's, he's checking all over the place, trying to find his ticket and not wishing to delay the train's departure or uh, to make a scene because he, he rec- the, the train person who was collecting the tickets recognized uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, he says to 
Einstein, you know, hey, we know who you are. We trust that you've purchased a ticket, so go ahead and, and just please board the train. We know exactly who you are. And so once Einstein boarded the train, he continued rummaging through this, this sack of papers that he had, making a mess. And so the, the guy who had collected the tickets comes by again and sees him doing this, and he says, Dr. Einstein, really, we, we know exactly who you are. Uh, you don't need to find your ticket. We trust that you already bought one. And so Einstein turns to the man and he says, young man, this is not a matter of trust, but of direction. I need to find my ticket because I've forgotten where I'm supposed to be going. <laughs> now, the fact is that this, this funny little story, and that's hilarious, uh, that you know, somebody so smart could forget something that's, you know, you would think that's somewhat important, but Einstein was actually known for forgetting major things, like to go to the bathroom in the middle of a math equation. Uh, he, he wouldn't wait, he wouldn't go to the bathroom. He would go where he was. Uh, but that is, I guess, the, the cost of being a genius. But the fact is that this illustrates a central truth about all of our lives, and that is that it's really, really easy, not only for us to get sidetracked, but to completely forget where we're going, to completely forget what our destination is. And I'm not talking about an eternal destination necessarily, although it is uh, absolutely important. I think it's vital to be reminded of the glory of heaven regularly. Uh, But I'm talking just about life in general. It's really important for us to keep our minds focused on where we're going. Where are we going? Where are you going? Where are we going as a group? These are important questions because our destination, that is, the place that we either feel called to go or where we have a vision to go, uh, that should determine what we're doing right now. There's a poem that goes, One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sail and not the gales which tells us the way to go. In other words, whether you want to go... That's east. Yeah. East or, or west... You don't want to just wait for a gale that's going in that direction that's going to take you there. You first have to set the the sails of the ship in accordance with the direction that you want to go. And one thing is certain. If you don't put the sails up, and you want to go one way or the other, if you don't put the sails up, I mean, I, I guess you call that debris? You know, you're just kind of floating there, and you know, maybe you'll catch a tide or something, but you don't know where you're going to go. You're not going to get to where you want to go. But the best thing is... Uh, to, to go one direction or another, the worst case scenario is you just sit there and you, know, you don't go anywhere at all. And likewise, the destination that we're headed toward should be reflected by the actions that we're taking now. If I say, well, my plan is to run a marathon by the end of the year, but let's say I don't like running. I, I, I do like running. But let's say I don't like running and that's my, uh, that's my goal. And so because I don't like running, I don't train There's no way that I'm going to be able to run a marathon by the end of the year. If I set that as my goal, if I set running a marathon as my goal, I need to take steps. I need to do more than just set the goal. I have to have a plan for reaching that goal. I need to have a training schedule or a training regiment. I'll need to watch what I eat. Maybe I'll have to find a training partner, which I've found uh, personally uh, very helpful. Uh, You get the point. Setting a goal is great. Everybody should have goals, right? But without a plan to get there, it's not going to happen. 
Best case scenario is nothing will happen. Worst case scenario, you'll end up someplace you don't want to be. Now, being that this is the beginning of a new year, we're going to be uh, diving into a new study called Uncommon Sense, uh, based largely on the life and the writings of Solomon, who was the wisest king of all the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. And we're calling this study Uncommon Sense. Uh, Noel will appreciate this, uh, because I've come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as common sense anymore. What seems completely obvious, to, to me anyway, uh, to somebody else might not seem obvious at all. And so the wisdom and, uh, and the sense of Solomon is indeed very uncommon in our world. And so for the next, uh, the next month or so, the next few weeks, we'll be exploring principles of wisdom which can not only help us in our, uh, in our respective walks with Jesus, but which should help us function more effectively and efficiently as a church body as well. Now, last week we talked a little bit about the vision and the mission of our church. Does anybody remember what our vision is? To know Christ and make him known. That's right. Does anybody remember what our mission is? There we go. Now you can never forget. Now you can, it's, it's going to be drilled into your mind every time you come in here, which is why those are up there. It's because we need to keep these things at the forefront of our minds. If we're going to reach that destination, we better have a plan for getting there. There's the plan. Remember, the vision is the destination. The mission is how we're going to get there. This is how we're going to know Christ and make him known. That's the biblical prescription for for growing deeper and for making him known, for reaching out and things like that. I, I just can't stress enough how important it is that we keep this at the forefront of our minds because without a plan that's put into action, failure is guaranteed to happen. It won't be, uh, success won't be achieved in any sense. The American slogan is that failing to plan is the same as? Planning to fail. Right, planning to fail. Right, and it's true. If we don't have a plan for reaching our destination, for fulfilling our vision, the best that can happen, the best case scenario, is that we go absolutely nowhere. Now, I want us to consider a question that you might hear in a job interview. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Where do you see us as a church in 10 years? You can take it further than that. What about 50 years? None of us will probably be here, or very few of us will be here in in 50 years. But where will we be somewhere down the road? It's a crucial question that uh, that we ask ourselves as individuals, because we all want to do more than just stay stagnant throughout our lives, but it's something that's important to consider as a church body as well. And as we look at the, the life and the writings of King Solomon, we see that he set some really lofty goals, but that he understood the importance of planning as a means of reaching his goals. And so starting in the fifth chapter of the book of First Kings, we read of Solomon's plans, or some of his plans, as Israel's king. We start in uh, chapter uh, 5, verses 1 to 5. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the, for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me 
rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. Now, of course, at this point in the story, at this point in the book of 1 Kings, Solomon has not been king for very long. In fact, his installation as Israel's king uh, was only a, a, in the previous chapter. And so having heard that Solomon had been the one who had been anointed as the replacement for King David, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his own servants over to help Solomon get himself established. And the reason he did that is it was a way of honoring King David, because apparently Hiram and David were good friends. So Solomon's response, look at his response. His response isn't to put this team of servants that arrives at his disposal. His, his response is not to put them to work right away. Rather, he sends them back to Hiram with a message. He, he basically says, my father couldn't build a house for the Lord because he got caught up in so many wars. Uh, he couldn't possibly have diverted his attention away from his enemies long enough to build it. But look at how the Lord has blessed me. We're in this time of prolonged peace and prosperity, and so I have every intention of using this time to do what the Lord promised my father I would do, build a house for the Lord. I mean, obviously, after David was told by the Lord, your son's going to do this, it would have been pretty foolish for David to have attempted uh, to build the house for the Lord after God himself told him, no, your son's going to do it. And so thus David, clearly having a good bit of wisdom himself to, to heed what the Lord said, uh, he focused on protecting and preserving the land. He took God at his word, which um, I think is always a wise thing to do. So uh, yeah, David had a good bit of wisdom himself. But what has Solomon done at this point, what, what has he done between verses 1 and 5 here? He's revealed a vision. He's revealed his destination. But he obviously has done more than just set a destination. He's taken the time to think through this. He's taken the time to develop a game plan for this. And thus he continues in his message to Hiram, king of Tyre, in verse 6. Now, therefore, command that they cut for me cedars from, Le from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So how is this vision going to be carried out? Here's the plan. He basically asks that his own servants work together with the servants of Hiram to start cutting some wood. To work together, if there's going to be a building, they're going to need plenty of wood. And here's how they're going to get it. Bring the Sidonians in. Because they had this reputation for being able to cut timber better, more efficiently, maybe more effectively than anybody else. Now, there are a couple of very wise principles that we see here, um, which, which demonstrate serious wisdom and maturity beyond Solomon's years. Uh, first of all, he took an inventory of his life. He, he looked around and said, okay, this is a good time to do this. And let's be honest, sometimes we, we, we want to do something, and life is just too hectic. It's just, the time just isn't right for one reason or another. And so sometimes we have to put things on the back burner for a season. But the second thing that he did is he didn't plan on doing this by himself. He didn't keep it all to himself. Instead, what did he do? 
he consults with a well-established king. Not only is that wise on, on Solomon's behalf, not only is that wise, but it's also incredibly humble. Solomon knew the benefits of seeking counsel from somebody else. And so he sought the counsel of somebody else, which is also why he wrote in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, without consultation, plans are frustrated. The Hebrew word also means broken or destroyed. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And we see this kind of wisdom actually scattered throughout uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's victory. That's from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Chapter 12, verse 15. Through pride comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Chapter 13, verse 10. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. That's from Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20. So what we see is, man, his, his writings were just filled with this principle that it's so important to receive counsel. It's so important to not just keep things to ourselves, but to share it with somebody who maybe knows better or maybe has a different perspective on how it could be done or should be done. See, Solomon knew the importance of planning, but he also knew the importance of receiving counsel. Now, what if, what if Hiram, just hypothetically speaking, what if Hiram had written back saying, whoa there, you know, young one, uh, just a minute, uh, grasshopper. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a wise idea to, contract, uh, to make a contract with the Sidonians, uh, you know, uh, through experience. You know, I've seen them break their contracts here and there. Or, or maybe he would have written back and said, uh, you know, sure, you guys are in peace now, but rumor has it that that's not going to last for long. So postpone your plans because war is coming. And what if Hiram would have written back with those things? I imagine that's kind of the stuff that Solomon was testing. You know, it, it, this seems like a good time, so I'm going to bring somebody else in, and he can share his wisdom with me and his resources with me, and we can work together to do this. Those would have been things that Solomon would have wanted to know, right? He would have wanted to know if there was a war coming. He would have wanted to know if there was something wrong with the Sidonians, for example. And so the first wise thing that we see here is that, uh, or the second wise thing that we see here is that Solomon consults with someone he trusts and respects. You see, we all need somebody who can, uh, who can spot our flaws and who knows what our weaknesses are. You know, those, those things right in our proverbial blind spot. You know, you, 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 it's just right outside of your peripheral vision. Or proverbial peripheral vision. Man, that's hard to say. Yeah, things that we, we don't necessarily know so well about ourselves, but it's kind of obvious to everybody else. You get what I'm saying. I'm talking about someone who doesn't just tell you what you want to hear, by the way, but somebody who can be brutally honest with you, somebody that you're okay with being brutally honest with you. And so the point here isn't to get as many affirmations of your plans as you possibly can. And the point, you know, also isn't to get as many diverse opinions as you possibly can. The point is to consider the wisdom, the insight, the perspective of somebody other than yourself. See, it's easy to surround ourselves with yes-men with the proverbial yes-men who, who affirm absolutely everything that we do. That's easy, but it's not wise. It's not wise. A few months back, 
Um, Some of you know that I received a phone call from a good friend of mine from seminary, and he told me that he had a very serious addiction to pornography and that he was really, really struggling with it. And it started when he was a kid, and it had kind of, over the past couple years, really grown to the point, and he was just tired of the cycle, of looking at it, feeling regret, feeling remorse, feeling guilt, uh, vowing never to look at it again, only to find himself falling into the same cycle the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And he, he knew that it wasn't right. He knew that it would break his wife's heart. But he couldn't get himself off of this cycle by himself. See, his, his, uh, his wife had known about his addiction. And so she asked my friend to call me. And as we talked, he told me that, you know, he, he did have a plan. I mean, his, his destination was to stop. And his plan was, well, someday it'll just stop on its own. And it didn't. It got worse. It got much worse. He was thinking it would eventually go away. But the perpetual guilt was seriously starting to hinder his walk with the Lord, so much so that my former seminary friend wasn't even going to church anymore. He couldn't even stand to go to church. And so now he had some ideas for, setting the, for, for reaching this goal, for, uh, for stop, you know, to stop looking at pornography. And part of his plans included going to his employer and confessing his struggle. And his employer was also a Christian, by the way. And so this could have very easily, because of his position, it could have very easily resulted in his termination. He, he could have lost his job. But before he took this, this step, he wanted to bounce his idea off of me. Is it, is it wise to go to my boss? Should I go to my boss, or is there something else that I should be doing? And I gave him a, a few more pointers. I said, first of all, when your wife is out of the house, his wife travels a lot. I said, when your wife's out of the house, she's got to take the modem with her. You can't have internet access in your home while she's gone. If you need to get online, go to Starbucks, go to the seminary. They've got free Wi-Fi there. You know, do, do something like that. But you can't face this alone. And you can't face it with the addiction sitting right in front of you. You don't surround yourself with temptations if you're trying to get beyond that temptation. And so what he did is he bounced his ideas off me because he knew that I would be forthright and brutally honest with him, and I was. Now, like my friend, Solomon did a lot more than just set a destination and make a plan to get there. He sought the counsel of others. The third thing that Solomon did was commit his work to the Lord. He says, behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And of course, Centuries later, Paul would instruct his audience to do everything, everything in life, as if they were working for the Lord rather than working for a person. But this was a principle that Solomon recognized was a key to his success long before Paul wrote it. See, Solomon didn't just write the book of Proverbs. He also contributed to, uh, to the Psalms in what is one of the best known and most easily memorized verses in the Bible, he wrote, unless the Lord builds the house, those who, you know it? They, those who labor in vain. Those who build it labor in vain. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is about this one principle, about how futile it is to do anything apart from the Lord. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, 
all is vanity. And of course, the word for vanity also means void of meaning, empty, worthless. So the central point of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is that everything that we have and everything that we do is fleeting. It's worthless. It's empty. Unless, unless it's for the Lord. And so with that wisdom in mind, he wrote Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3, where he wrote, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And so while you've got this verse uh, fresh in your mind, let me explain why this step is so important. Solomon actually tells us why this principle is so important in the, in the verse immediately prior to this one, where he wrote, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight. In his own sight. But... The Lord weighs the motives. In other words, any works that aren't committed to the Lord are being done with the wrong motivation. They're being done for the wrong reason. And if we're going, uh, if if we're doing what we're doing for the praise of men, or uh, you know, make ourselves look good in front of other people, Solomon tells us in verse five that the Lord considers us to be an abomination. That's steep. That's harsh. But that's where he goes in verse 5 of uh, Proverbs chapter 16. Now let me boil this down to just the the bare bones because this principle is really, really easy for us to remember. And the easier something is to remember, the the easier it is for us to implement it in our lives. The game plan here basically boils down to this. Pray, plan, act. Pray, plan, act. Any action that's done without praying or planning for that matter, is done out of haste. And what do we say about that? Haste makes waste, right? We, we've all heard that, right? But Solomon kind of said it first in a different way. He said, the plans of the diligent surely lead to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. So we want to make sure that we're not hasty. Pray, plan, and act. And lots of prayer in between uh, uh, planning and acting too. Pray all the way through. Pray all the way through. Bathe it in prayer. But this is probably as, as good a point as any to point out that some people will say that, you know, the Lord should, uh, should establish what the Lord will establish and take care of what the Lord wants in the Lord's own time. And, you know, we, we shouldn't, you know, make plans. We should just kind of go with the flow and wait for the Spirit to give us really specific directions. You will not find that in all of Scripture. That, is, that idea is not supported in all of Scripture, and yet it's one of the movements in the church these days. It, it's kind of prevalent. It's kind of dangerous. You know, waiting to know exactly what God's will is. Now, of course, we want to stay in God's will, but we need to understand that this idea of, of waiting for specific directions for God's will isn't found in Scripture. Sometimes Paul, for example, he would want to go, into, he'd want to go on a mission into a certain area, and the Lord would prevent him from going. We don't know exactly how. All it says is the Lord prevented him from going. That didn't stop Paul from making plans. It stopped Paul from implementing his plans when the Lord stepped in and made it obvious that he wasn't permitted to go. We don't have the full details on how that became apparent to Paul, but it didn't stop him from praying. It didn't stop him from making plans. All we know is that the Lord hindered Paul's plans when Paul's plans weren't perfectly lined up with God's plans. For example, Paul told the Romans that he wanted to visit them. He starts off his letter basically by saying, I have wanted to visit you. But then in chapter 15, verse 22, he tells them, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Of course, he finally did make it to Rome. 
as a prisoner, a prisoner to the Roman Empire. But he also planned on going to Spain. That was something that he, uh, he revealed to the church in Rome in his letter to them. I'm, I'm going to stop by your place, and I'm, then I'm going, to, uh, going off to Spain. It never happened. The Lord had other plans. The Lord had something else going on. So the point here isn't to say, oh, you know, look at how dumb Paul was to, to plan something that wasn't in accordance with God's will. Or look how sinful Paul was to plan something that wasn't in accordance with God's will. The point is to pray, plan, and act. And trust that if God doesn't want it to happen, guess what? It's not going to happen. God has the power to stop any one of us from doing anything. He has the power to shut me up right now. And some of you might be praying for that. (laughs) God can prevent something that he doesn't want to happen. So if God doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. And that's okay. Because that means the pressure is off of us. We don't need to worry about planning things that are outside of God's will because God will prevent them if he doesn't want them to happen. So what has God put on your heart? That's the real question. What has God put on your heart to do? You don't need specific details. Just do something. Start working and see what the Lord blesses. If you think that you can plan something that God doesn't want to happen, I'll just say you need to rethink your idea of God because our God is bigger than that. Amen? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He makes the final choices. Why did God prevent Paul from visiting the church in Rome? Man, we, we can only hope to find out in heaven someday. We have no idea why the Lord prevented Paul from visiting the church in Rome. But if our plans go awry, the lesson here is that if our plans go awry, the temptation might be there to get angry or bitter at God. Oh, I was planning this great thing for you, and it, it wouldn't happen. It didn't happen. But I, I just encourage us to get past uh, that point, to resist the temptation to get discouraged or to get bitter, and just be thankful that the Lord intervened to prevent something that we wanted to do because ultimately he has our best interests in mind. James said this, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So there's kind of a proverbial conversation going on here between one person who says, we're going to go into such and such a city, and James is saying, no, that's not what you should say. You should say, if the Lord wills, we'll go into such and such a city. We'll do this or that. So what James is telling us here is not that we shouldn't plan, that we shouldn't make plans. James is telling us here that the Lord needs to be at the center of those plans. You see the difference between person one and person two? The difference is, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. James isn't saying that we shouldn't plan for tomorrow. He's saying that everything we plan, every goal we set, every dream that we envision, every moment we exist, every breath that we take, hinges on the sovereignty of God. God's will. God's will. Everything hinges on God's will. If the Lord doesn't will it, it's not going to happen. It's as simple as that. And what we see here for the rest of uh, the fifth chapter of 1 Kings, sorry, Kurt, I'm not going to preach verse by verse through the whole thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you did a great job reading it. Uh, but what we see for the rest of this chapter is that Hiram uh, rejoices over Solomon's wisdom, and they go on to make this, this covenant, this treaty with one another as good friends, and the work toward building this great house of God, this, this awesome temple that Solomon has planned, gets underway, and eventually we see that it was completed. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, we, we read, Thus all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And so as we start the new year, my prayer for each one of us and for all of us as a whole is that we would all experience what I refer to as holy discontent. Holy discontent. And that's honestly just a fancy way of saying that I hope each one of us has the goal of growing closer to Jesus this year. Not just being content with where we are, but growing closer to Jesus. It means refusing to be content with where we are in our walk with the Lord. Is anybody in here perfect yet? I was going to let you preach, okay. Uh, (laughs) No, none of us is perfect. Then let yourself grow in holy discontent. Let it really set in, because the more discontent we become, the more likely we are to do something about it, right? The more likely we are to act. Solomon wasn't content to worship in a tabernacle. He wanted more. He wanted to give God more than just the tabernacle. So he grew in holy discontent, which caused him to do what? Pray, plan, act, and to build this temple for the Lord. See, God wasn't content to just leave us dying in our sins, separated from himself for all of eternity. And so he sent his only son to bear the wrath that sin requires on our behalf. God had a plan from all of eternity to send Jesus to become like one of us, to suffer like we suffer, to experience temptation like we experience temptation, to experience pain like we experience pain. Why? Because those were the steps that needed to be done in order to restore humanity's relationship with God. It was what needed to be done in order for there to be peace between God and those who trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation. Holy discontent. Discontent for a good reason, for a holy reason. Now, just in case you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Paul say that he had learned to be content in all of his circumstances, I know that somebody out there, uh, at least in internet land, would have been thinking this. Yes, he did. That's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. But let me ask you this. What does it mean to be content? And I'm going to give you two options here. The first option is that it means that we should limit our desires to what we already have and what we have already achieved. The second uh, definition is that we, or our desires should be limited to what God wants us to have and what he wants us to achieve. Clearly, being content does not necessarily mean that we shouldn't be setting goals beyond our current situation. Was Paul content with his walk with the Lord? I doubt it. I, I, I bet you he studied the scriptures and he got more and more uh, you know, uh, informed, educated, uh, persuasive. You know, he, he, he knew that where he was, was was okay, but you can always draw closer to God. You can always draw closer to him. And so I want each of us to just to dream 
beyond our current situation. And I really want us to feel the, the frustration of holy discontent. I want all of us to be closer to Jesus. I want all of us to be more obedient to Jesus. I want every one of us to be more surrendered to Jesus. You see, it's easy for us to set a destination point. Uh, well, this year, you know, I think I'll be a better Christian. What does that mean? How are you going to get there? How are you going to get there? Are, are you going to, um, you know, are you going to pray more? Are you going to read your Bible more, uh, maybe more regularly? Is it uh, maybe you need to set a devotion every day, you know, a time for devotion every day? What's the plan? What's the plan? You can't just say, okay, I'm going to be a better Christian this year and not have a plan. Or I'm going to draw closer to Jesus and not have a plan. Now, before your mind starts going all kinds of different directions, thinking about how you would do that, let me ask you, as, uh, as a part of our church, to take on the vision and the mission of our church this year. See, one of the ways that God designed us to grow closer to him is by working together, serving one another as a community. And that's why serving God by serving people is really what ties our mission together. Paul said this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He said, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now the first thing that I want us to see here is that there's a contrast. The word but indicates that there's a contrast. And Paul's making a contrast between turning our freedom in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh and serving one another through love. He contrasts these two things. You see that? And that means that if we aren't serving one another through love, what are we doing? We're turning our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Why do I teach Sunday school? Why do I spend hours on end preparing and delivering a sermon week in and week out? Why do I teach our purity class on Sunday nights? Why do I lead worship, uh, the, the unplugged worship? You know, for me, these are my ways of serving God by serving you guys. Some of the ways that I serve God by serving you guys. Is it exhausting? Sometimes, sure. But is it rewarding? Friends, there is nothing in the world that's more fulfilling and rewarding than serving the Lord. And so I find incredibly great and very deep satisfaction in serving. And I want you guys to feel that satisfaction. As Solomon would say, pursuing opportunities for the flesh is vanity. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's empty of any meaning. Love for others needs to be your motivation for service, love for God and love for others. That's why Paul said, the love of Christ compels us. That's one of my favorite verses because it's, it's ambiguous. The love of Christ, meaning Christ's love for us or the love of Christ, our love for him. Which one does it mean? It's worded so that it can mean both. It compels us. His love for us and our love back to him compels us. The second thing that I want us to see here is that the words, through love, serve one another, are not presented as optional. This is an imperative for the person who follows Jesus. The fact is that if you have surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, you have been uniquely gifted to serve right here. There's a specific type of service that you have been uniquely gifted 
with. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it or, or, or use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, every one of us, no exceptions, Every one of us has a gift for service. To use it is to be a faithful steward. To not use it, to neglect it, is to waste it or squander it. And our study of the, the parable, uh, parable of the minas and the parable of the talents last week, we saw that God expects us to use any and all resources that have been entrusted with us to advance the kingdom of of God. And Peter makes it clear for us, he makes it plain as day right here, that that includes the spiritual gifts that we've been given. To use it, he says, is being a good steward. They weren't given for us to sit on. They're gifts, they're not chairs. We're to use them to be good and faithful stewards of them. And what's the result, was Peter tell us, is the result of being a faithful steward of our gifts? Look at what he says. So that, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Does anybody here want to glorify God? This is the game plan. This is how you do it. This is, that's how Peter's laid it out for us. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with setting goals or, or, or New Year's resolutions. The point is, it's, it's crucial that we check our motivation. Make sure they're pure. Make sure they are centered on the Lord. That his love for us and our love for him is the motivation. And make sure that our plans are bathed in prayer. Pray, plan, act. Make sure that one of your goals this year is to know Christ and make him known. And since you already know him, don't be content. Don't be content with where you are. Grow deeper. Grow closer. Let that holy discontent stir up a desire to commit to doing something great for the Lord this year. Do something great. Let it motivate you to love him more and let the love be the fuel for your service to others. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate model of loving servanthood. He loved us. Therefore, he served us by dying in our place. How can we become more like Jesus? by embracing his model of loving service. Uncommon sense dictates that we be as intentional about planning our goal, our vision, as we are about coming up with a plan to get there. And that's why these are up on the wall over here today. God wants to be at the center of our plans. And that's why he planned from the foundation of the earth to send Jesus, his only begotten son, to save us. And the game plan is simple. Say it with me. Pray, plan, act. Keeping the Lord at the center of it all. That's a major key for success in carrying out our plans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible wisdom that you have that is reflected in Solomon's life.
at least at this point. Lord, we ask that you would stir up holy discontent in us. Let us not be content just where we are, but may we grow in discontent to the point where we do something about it, serving you by serving others. Thank you, Lord, for your model of service, for sending your son to die for us. I pray that that would just motivate us even more to serve you in all that we do. May we be drawn closer to you this year, and may we more closely reflect the nature of your son who loved us enough to die for us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. When we see you, when we see you, beautiful, you're beautiful, your love is sweet and beautiful, and I will stay here waiting for beautiful, beautiful, you're beautiful, your love is wild and bountiful, yes, all I need is more of my beautiful, Jesus love, say, worshippers, you want love, say, worshippers, so alive, and desperate at your feet, Jesus love, say, worshippers, we are love, say, Worshippers in our hearts Desire will be complete When we see you